He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And we are back for episode something something of I I can't I've tracked it, Phil, but I don't remember. We're at 60 some odd episodes now. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedi. I'm the co-host, Jack Heald, the talking head. And we have today uh somebody that I'm really looking forward to hearing from. Phil, please tell us about this person that's here and uh why she's here, and then we'll we'll hear her story. Sure thing. And I've been uh, looking forward to having this discussion with uh, our guest, uh, Siobhan Huggins, uh, for quite a while now. Um, I first met Siobhan, uh, I don't know, it's got to be for probably about four years ago at uh, one of my first uh, low-carb conferences. And, you know, Siobhan is a, um, I guess what we would call a, a citizen scientist who, like many of us in this space, you know, was facing her own um, issues around health and wasn't getting the results uh, she was looking for and started doing her own research. And that has led her down many an interesting pathway. Um, Siobhan has certainly gone deeper than most uh, into the research and really has become one of the leaders, um, I would say, in the research around ketogenic diets and, and some of their unique benefits, which we're, we will get into during this discussion. But uh, before I say too much, uh, let me turn it over to Siobhan so she can tell us uh, her story, her background, and then we can get into all of the interesting uh, research that uh, she is currently doing. Yeah, so I would say going as far back as I can remember, basically, um, the latest time in my childhood I remember being mentally healthy and happy, I would say, was probably kindergarten. Um, so wow. I distinctly remember it was pretty pretty normal at that point. Um, but by the age of nine, I had started to develop depression symptoms and by 11, it was full blown. So reading over journals at that time period, you could basically go through and be like, check, 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 check on all of the symptoms and behavior that I was showing. Um, so that was pretty <laughs> difficult. Um, and I do have journals from that time that I've read over because it's kind of fascinating at this point. Um, already by then I was body shaming myself because I had also started to gain weight around the same time. Um, talking about very severe calorie restriction at 11 years old, which is <laughs> sad to think about now. Um, and really just insulting myself and having a very negative self-image, having trouble, um, interacting with others like my peers, um, and I would end up in these like rumination loops of, I would have this interaction with someone and then I would keep going over it again and again and again in my head. Like you did this wrong. You did that wrong. Like they don't like you anymore. Nobody actually likes you like all of that. And that <laughs> continued, um, up until, uh, <laughs> about six years ago and changed pretty much. Um, and it, didn't get any better and it continued and 
started, I mean, it was bad, <laughs> like just all around bad. Um, but when I was working, um, working my first job in IT, it was the same thing. I had issues um, kind of interacting with coworkers and managers and just navigating all of that because it was just a constant trap of negativity and self-hatred and just a lot of struggle. Um, and I didn't talk about it much <laughs> because it's like, I thought it was normal <laughs> and everybody felt that way and they were just better at hiding it than I was. And so since I had been a child, I was also working on hiding it because I didn't want to bother other people with what I realized later was very serious depression. Um, and at the same time, which didn't help at all, um, by the time I was 18, I was obese. And at that time, I was 240 pounds. And I'm 5'2", so that's a lot on my frame. Wow. And I was very aware of it. And I wouldn't really say it was anything like, oh, I saw like pretty women in magazines. And I like that was the reason I had self negative image. Um, I think it was comparing myself to my peers because I knew I was different and I felt different and I didn't like it. Um, and so I had always been trying to lose weight. Like I said, even when I was 11, I was trying to cut back on desserts and cut back on calories and like all of this stuff, especially because in high school they had nutrition classes. And it was, you know, if you're overweight, you need to cut calories, eat high carb, all this stuff. Um, and so I was genuinely trying to do that. Um, but the problem was when I was calorie restricting, especially when it was very severe, it would make the depression symptoms worse and it would cause really severe mood swings. <laughs> and Unfortunately, the person who got the brunt of that was my boyfriend, who is still my boyfriend now. <laughs> so he obviously stuck around. But um, like it would happen and I would be self-aware that it was happening. But it's not like you can tell yourself like you're being irrational, like you've had this conversation 12 times already. Just stop doing it. Like it just doesn't <laughs> work that way. Um, and so I would be having these mood swings and then I would also be feeling awful because I was subjecting loved ones to that. And it was just, again, another spiral of negativity, basically. Um, and the other aspect of it was when I cut calories, I was hungry. Like I was already hungry when I wasn't cutting calories. And then I would cut calories and I would get even hungrier. And I would lose a little bit of weight, but it would come back. And so the next time I cut calories, I would go even lower. And at the final, phase of that before I finally found a ketogenic diet, I was aiming for 800 calories a day because I was like, this has to do something. And it was awful. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it, um, especially if it makes you that miserable. So I was struggling with this mental illness and also struggling with obesity. And I didn't know what to do. <laughs> like I had tried to do what I was told to do and it wasn't working. And it was causing even more self-blame. Like, clearly you are doing something wrong because this is the only advice that there is pretty much. Um, and when I was, this was in 2016. So I was like 21 and 20, something like that. Um, I went into my mom's office and I told her I was going to start cutting calories again. I was kind of <laughs> looking for a, yeah, you go like, go ahead and try and get healthy again. It's a constant struggle, whatever. 
Um, but she actually told me instead of doing that, like very gently, um, I've been looking into this ketogenic diet and she was looking into it for her own reasons. Um, but she said that she had come across a good amount of information that it was actually really helpful for weight loss. And I was kind of skeptical at first because the resource she handed me just because she had it on hand was one of those magazines that are like near the checkout aisles. And it's like, uh, this is not (laughs) really trustworthy information. She's like, no, no, just like go look into it. Like this is, I just had this. So whatever. Um, so I did go and I looked it up online and I felt like I should at least look into it because my mom is not stupid. She's one of the smartest people I know. So it's like, she's not going to recommend this for no reason. Um, she's never recommended me a diet before. Like that's never happened. So I did look into it and I did find that there was some good information that it might be helpful for weight loss. And I came across like subreddits that were talking about people who'd had success with it and all that. Uh, So I decided that I would try a ketogenic diet, really strict, no cheating. I'm a big rule follower. (laughs) Um, And I guess like even then I set it up as an experiment for myself. Like we're going to do this and we're going to see what happens and we'll reevaluate at that point. Had you been involved in any kind of any form of biohacking other than calorie restriction prior to keto? Yeah, so I wouldn't really say biohacking necessarily, but I had been vegetarian for like a year when I was 14, 15. Um, And I mean, I had tried some whole food based approaches, um, trying for higher carb because I had seen that recommended um, and it just hadn't done much. And the same with the calorie restriction, like the things I was trying just wasn't working. And it was incredibly frustrating, especially because I knew other family members had been through that same process of trying different things over and over and over again and not getting anywhere. (laughs) It's like, I don't want that to be my life. And it, but at the same time, it's like, what is the alternative? There's nothing else. Um, But yeah, so I had decided to try a ketogenic diet for two months, really strict. And if it worked, then even at the beginning, I was like, if this works, then I'm just sticking with it forever because I don't ever want to go back to where I am. Um, And I did that. And at the end of the two months, I had lost 20 pounds, I think. Um, And I had lost... 20 pounds before. <laughs> like that wasn't anything new. Right. But it had been so easy and I hadn't felt like I was restricting myself at all. Um and it was like, wow. And it's like I had foods that I would eat normally, like fog paneer, different types of curries and stuff. And I would just adapt them to keto. Like, okay, I'm eating this stuff now. So I was pretty happy with just how easy it was. And one of the things I had focused on in the beginning was memorizing really low carb ingredients. So I didn't have to continue tracking because I really, really hated tracking. Um, That's cool. Yeah. So it's like, this is a barrier for me. So I'm going to tackle this as soon as possible. So I don't have to deal with it. Um, And that was pretty successful. And, but at the end of the two months, the thing that would like really cinched it for me, like, okay, this is the thing for me is I had been standing in a parking lot of like a farm store that I had gone to with my mom. And I had to like pause for a second because I was, I had a feeling and I didn't know what it was. So I was trying to examine it. 
And I realized after a second that I was content with my life and I was grateful for my friends and grateful for my family and grateful for my boyfriend and grateful for my life and really happy with myself for the first time since probably kindergarten. And I realized that I was not pressed like at all. (laughs) And there were still, I think, lingering issues that I had to work through. Like one of the issues with depression is that it caused that ruminating and that resulted in social anxiety. So the social anxiety was, I think, like a thought pattern habit in a way that I had to undo. And I largely did that at my first keto conference. So I was practicing like going up and talking to people um, and like giving myself new information with a clear head. Like this is how people react when you talk to them and ask them questions. And they were always super happy and friendly and glad to talk to me and happy to have me in the community. And so that really like planted the seeds for me to have a healthier mindset. And I do like still sometimes have a little bit of social anxiety, but it's something I can be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> like you're overthinking it. Don't worry about it. Bill, did, did you, you know, we, we focus primarily on the health benefits on the physical changes, the physical transformations that occur. And I'm aware that when people get physically healthy, um, they're likely to become more mentally to have to have a mental boost as well. Have, but we haven't you and I haven't ever really talked about this. Did you experience a, a, a mental and emotional, a permanent mem- mental and emotional lift as you began seeing the the pounds melt off and I mean what yeah, which, so, funds, you know, which funds reporting here is almost a personality transformation or at least how you how you met the world has shifted did you have the same thing you know i certainly um noticed change in my mindset i would say and uh you know i uh, i certainly was not starting from anywhere near as uh difficult a place as uh, siobhan was um but you know i certainly uh noticed and continue to notice um that um i describe it as a sort more uh even um you know kind of uh approach uh to life a more even mood um and you know perhaps not as uh uh prone to you know becoming agitated and angry or some of the things i noted and then the mental clarity and of course you know uh we we had Chris Palmer on talking about this. We've had a few other guests who have uh, mentioned this. And, you know, uh, it is a very real effect uh, of improving metabolic health. And, uh, you know, it it warrants further discussion for further explanation, uh, further, uh, you know, scientific exploration, I guess I should say, uh, to try and explain, you know, what is exactly going on there. Um, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about your story, Siobhan, is, um, you know, you you were pretty young when this was all, you know, when you kind of came to the ketogenic diet. You were, I believe, late teens or early 20s. Uh, 2021, yeah. Yeah, when this was sort of uh, going on. Um, and, um, you know, you, uh, I think, had more insight than most into your uh 
you know, your condition, your state of being, you kind of noticed these changes that perhaps many people wouldn't. Um, but you also kind of came or came at it with a very scientific approach. And I'm just wondering, you know, what, what was your thinking um, as you were starting this, as you were going through it? You kind of mentioned that you were, uh, you know, skeptical at the beginning and your mom had, you know, basically bought you one of those supermarket tabloids. Uh, to introduce this, um, but yet you, you know, you were open to trying it, obviously. And then I think you had a very analytic approach as you, you know, went through it. And, uh, you know, that leads into a lot of what you're doing today, obviously, as well. So I'd love to hear more about that sort of mindset, how you approach this. Yeah, I guess that's just in my personality, maybe <laughs> like I tend to get a little bit obsessive about things <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Um, and I just wanted to make sure it was going to work. And so I knew if I kind of went into it half hearted and had like a cheat day every week or something like that, it might have made it more difficult for me and it could have interfered with the results. And then I could be missing out on something that could actually be helpful. Because I had seen um, some papers published on low-carb diets and subreddits, like I mentioned, of people talking about their experience with it. And so I was like, okay, well, I have to really give this a good try. For one, my mom recommended it. And so it kind of has a plus one next to it, <laughs> like a little bit more credibility. And I was also seeing similar experiences from other people and some in the published research. And I just wanted it to work. And in order for that to happen, I had to be really strict about it. And the other thing is, I think like when there's gray areas for me, it just gets a lot more complicated. So I want really easy to understand rules like, okay, a ketogenic diet is under 20 grams of carbs. And around when I started, mom also gave me a copy of the obesity code and so I was like, I'm not going to calorie restrict either. I'm going to eat until full every single meal. I'll eat when hungry. I'll not eat when not hungry. Um, it's kind of easy to follow like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing. It's not confusing. I can easily look at a thing and be like, okay, that's not on my plan. Like that's going to mess this up. Um, and it just made it easier for me, I think. Um, so that's why I did it that way is I wanted to see if it really did work and I wanted it to be as easy to understand as possible because it was this new thing. Like I had no experience with low carb diets at all. Um, so yeah, I think it was just like my brain is <laughs> kind of weird. I I know we kind of dropped into the middle of your story there, but I have a undisciplined promiscuous curiosity and I, I want to follow up on the emotional and mental changes. I know that you now have a, a a role with, what is it, the carnivore code? Uh, so there's the cholesterol code. Cholesterol and then, code. Yeah. And, and that is, uh, well, why don't you explain what the cholesterol code is? Because that will lay the groundwork for my follow-up question. Yeah. So the cholesterol code is a blog that was started by Dave Feldman, I think in like 2016 or something. Um, maybe earlier than that. Um, but it's kind of funny because a lot of my origin story <laughs> goes back to KetoFest, which was a ketogenic festival, basically like a big party um, that took place in New London, Connecticut in summer of 2017. And I got involved with that because I had been um, 
an admin for the ketogenic forums. And that was run by the same people who were putting on KetoFest. So I went there as staff. Um, and I actually went there with my mom. And some of my experiences there actually have an interesting like reflection point that I'll circle back around to so I can actually answer your okay. question first. So that was actually where I met uh, Dave Feldman for the first time. So I knew of him in passing because he was also an admin, but we hadn't really talked one-on-one -on -one that much. Um, but I had mentioned that at the time I was working in IT and when he was talking about like all of this cholesterol metabolism stuff, he was talking about it in terms of distributed object networks and like very techie stuff, <laughs> basically. Um, and I had had conversations about distributed object networks with my dad since I was like a kid, because he's also an IT person. And so it was super fascinating. I've never had me. conversations like that with my daughters. Well, in fact, if dad, I said the phrase distributed object ne network to either of my daughters, they would probably instantly fall asleep. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been interested in computers for a long time. Like I like tinkering with my own and eventually I got into working at a help desk and doing some scripting work and stuff like that. So oh. it was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is awesome. Dad <laughs> has told me about how awesome all this stuff is. Um, oh so, and the other aspect is if you've ever met Dave, he's a super fascinating dude. And I was immediately like, I have to know more about this person. He's so friendly. It's bizarre to me. And he would, he'll give you like so much of your time. So anytime there was an open seat next to him, I would immediately sit down and start asking him <laughs> questions of like, okay, HDL, like, what is it for? What does it do? And there was some stuff um, that he would just be like, this could be the case, but I don't know. Like maybe LDL is used in the immune system, but I don't know. And I could tell at that point, <laughs> probably because I'm very familiar with my dad also, like, this dude is so busy. If I wait for him to answer these questions, I'm going to be waiting forever. And I really want to know the answer. So, um, <laughs> so I, I think I know what's coming. Yeah. So I had participated in a event that was going on, which was, uh, the keto fest cholesterol drop experiment. And through that process, I happened to get Dave's, um, cell phone number. And so I started texting him unsolicited. <laughs> it's like, what do you recommend uh, for learning about cholesterol? Like all this. And he recommended uh, Peter Atia's The Straight Dope on Cholesterol. And I started reading it, but it hurt my head. <laughs> so at the very beginning, though, it says, if you want to be a citizen lipidologist, read these two textbooks. And it was clinical lipidology and therapeutic lipidology, I think. And so I got copies of those and I started reading them on the bus back from Connecticut. <laughs> so, um, I'm a voracious how... <laughs> reader and, and just the two titles of the book, just not remotely interested. So I applaud you. <laughs> Clinical methodology okay, is actually really good and I love it. Um, yeah, but <laughs> so for a frame <laughs> of reference, um, there was a period of time in my life before, um, keto fest actually, where I was reading about 170 books a year. Um, so like it was a new topic, but I wasn't unfamiliar with reading stuff. I like to learn stuff. Um, and before this point, it had been more passive learning. Like if someone came onto the ketogenic forums and was like, how, like do sweeteners impact insulin or whatever, I would go digging through PubMed and read them and say like, I think it means this maybe hopefully someone else can comment and correct me or whatever. 
Um, but it wasn't something I was actively seeking out. It was more to help other people answer questions. Um, but when I connected with Dave, it was like, all right, I'm going to start learning about this. And I wish I could go back through because in uh, we were communicating over Slack at the time. And I would send like these massive walls of text <laughs> of like, I've been reading through this and I found this and here's what I think is happening and blah, blah, blah. Um, and those <laughs> time periods were a source of like still anxiety I was working through because I was like, he's going to respond. He's going to be like, I'm busy or like, I'm not stop talking to me. But instead he responded with as much enthusiasm as I was giving him. And I was like, this has never happened to me before. <laughs> like I would get wow. super interested in topics and people would just glaze over and slowly sidle away. But instead <laughs> I had met someone who could meet me at that level and even trump me in some ways and be like, but did you consider this? Um, so yeah, so I've contributed some posts to cholesterol code, um, sometimes like review type articles about certain topics and in other cases, posting about my own experiments because I started getting into it and replicating some of the stuff that he was doing and doing some of my own stuff. Um, and yeah, so that's how I got into cholesterol code, but I wanted to comment on like one thing, cause I think it's such a good, example of how much I changed um, from keto, which is before I went keto, dad would always come home from work um, when I was in high school. And he would ask me, how was your day? Like, that's a dad thing. He does it all the time. Yeah. And I would really dislike it. And it would make me incredibly uncomfortable because every single time he asked, which was every single day, the answer, which I knew was true, was not good to extremely bad. But at the same time, like, I don't want to say that. <laughs> That's not very socially acceptable to say, I'm really awful. Actually, how are you doing? And I didn't want to lie either. So I would usually just not respond or just say something like decent or alive because <laughs> it's like, I'm not lying. <laughs> um, and it was my way of like, dealing with the question that I really didn't want to think about myself because it made me reflect on how wow. I was feeling. And I just didn't want to think about that. It wasn't a pleasant thing to think about. Um, and I'm really so, glad you shared that. Yeah, it was, that's, that's something that there's listeners who's going to hear that and they're going to go, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And it's difficult because you do want to connect with another person, but sure. you want to connect honestly. And sometimes you can't do that without them being like, Whoa, what's wrong? like there's nothing wrong it's not like anything happened this is just how i feel like i don't know how to explain this to you um oh, and i didn't want to wow. worry him either obviously um and it's funny also because at the same time instead of doing the whole like how are you exchange with mom i would turn to her and be like did you know and i would just recount some random fact that i had learned and that was my way of connecting without talking about myself um but then, so at Keto Fest, the comparison to that is mom was with me because I had asked her to take me to Keto Fest for like an early birthday present. And she was like, well, I don't know, that'd be kind of expensive. And I was like, what if I pay for it and you come? And she's like, how is that a birthday present? It's like, because I'd be going with you, like laying it on thick. So she had to come with me. It's like, oh God, fine. Um, so we both went. And so she got to see me in that sort of environment where I had been on a ketogenic diet for like six to eight months or something like that. Um, 
And she commented to one of the other people that she was talking to that it was like I was a different person because I was talking to everybody I possibly could. I was going up to people and initiating conversations. I was happy. I was helping out. I was volunteering to help with different things. And it's like you mentioned, it was a different personality almost. And I would not have been able to do any of that if I had not had the level of mental health that I had at that time. And like, I wouldn't be able to do the bulk of what I'm doing now (laughs) without a ketogenic diet. And like the, there's one thing that people have asked me that I find interesting, but I also have comparisons for it. So I can actually kind of answer, which is, weren't you just less depressed because you lost weight and were more skinny? (laughs) And it's like, okay, well, like I mentioned, I had done calorie restriction and I had lost 20 pounds before and the depression had never gotten away. And in that context, it had gotten worse. So this was the complete opposite where by the two month mark, I had lost 20 pounds, which is something I'd done before. But in this context, the depression was gone. And so I don't think it's just like, oh, I had better body image or whatever. And so I felt happier. For me, I think it is a metabolic thing. And I also have hints of that because if I accidentally have non-ketogenic food, like sometimes there's flour and sauces at restaurants. I'll start getting some of those anxiety and depression symptoms again. So I do have to be careful. Like even over six years in, I still have to like, I mostly don't eat at restaurants anymore because I don't trust them. Um, You know, Chris Palmer, and this is almost a direct quote said to us. He is at a point now, you know who Chris Palmer is. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, Audience, Dr. Chris Palmer, season two, episode, I don't know, 28 or something. he said at this point in his in his career in his practice he's convinced that all brain dysfunction is metabolic dysfunction yeah i would say it, it just it blew my mind and it's, it blew his mind when he started seeing it so i yeah. i it's it's what you're describing is very consistent with what one of the leading psychiatric researchers in the country is finding Yeah. And I think there can be some things that linger. Like I mentioned, like the social anxiety was something I had to work through afterward um, because it was a thought pattern that I had built up of overanalyzing things and coming to incorrect conclusions. And there were also other things that improved, but didn't fully resolve. Um, So by the time I had started a ketogenic diet, I had PTSD at the time, which isn't something I talk about a lot because it sucks. But the symptoms of the PTSD did get better and they got better again when I went carnivore, but there was still lingering things like certain times of the year, it would start coming up again. Um, And eventually I saw a trauma counselor and worked through that. And then finally it was fully resolved. So there are some things that were like immediately gone, some things that improved, but I still had to work through. And I think it's just thought pattern type of stuff worse, like with trauma. (laughs) I think of it kind of in terms of like with epilepsy, they say like everyone has a seizure threshold. And I also think everybody has a trauma threshold, but like with epilepsy, the seizure threshold can vary. So ketogenic diets can make that threshold higher. So the seizures don't happen as often. I think that can also happen with trauma where the threshold goes up to where I'm not as easily traumatized anymore. And I've experienced this weirdly in real time um, where I could 
feel myself starting to go through that same process. And then I kind of looked at what I was doing with my diet and really tightened up and it started to stop doing that. So I think for me, that's another aspect that I have to be really, really careful about. We could drop the mic right here. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. I almost said fun, but it's not quite fun, but it's very interesting. It's one of those things like, again, it's self-experimentation of, whoa, if I do this thing, this thing starts happening when bad things happen. And it's like constantly when I was depressed, I would do like a lot of introspection of, well, you had this situation and you reacted this way and felt this way, but that doesn't make sense. And you can look at the situation afterwards and be like, the way that you're feeling is not logical. And you start having arguments with yourself. And, but I kept up that habit after the depression went away. So I'll constantly be introspecting. Like if like, sometimes I'll have an interaction and I'll get upset over it and I'll introspect and be like, yeah, that's kind of understandable to get upset at. That's whatever it's normal. But sometimes I'll introspect and I'll be like, that doesn't make any sense. You kind of blew that out of proportion there. And the way that you're feeling right now does not match up with reality. And the first thing I'll do <laughs> is I'll look at my diet. Am I eating things that I know bother me? Even if it's not carbs, there are certain things like spices and dairy over the past couple of years, where if I have it too often or in too large amounts, it'll start impacting my mood. And then it's inevitably, it'll be like, it's that you're doing that thing again stop it like tighten that up um but it's like i have to keep self-checking because sometimes like regression to the mean happens you get a little bit looser with things it's like oh it's not that big a deal or the most common one that i'll have is like there's no way no way cream cheese can't impact your mood that's so stupid that there's no possible way but then it's so consistent (laughs) it's like at what point do you just accept that this is happening and you need to stop doing it? Like cognitive dissonance kicks in every single time. Yep. Yep. Okay. So um, we've got you uh, to the point that you're recognizing you're having an, an experience of existence, an existential experience that is better than anything you've ever had. And we're also like 45 minutes into this conversation. We haven't even <laughs> begun. Okay. So, summary. Yeah, yeah, look. Siobhan has changed her life. <laughs> Let's talk well, about. So, yeah, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I was uh, going to say we can get into because we, you know, explored some of the neuropsychiatric, uh, you know, issues that Siobhan has dealt with and, and successfully overcome. Uh, we haven't even really gotten into some of the uh, physical uh, manifestations. Um, and in particular, you know, I want to talk about, um, you know, uh, a condition called lipedema, which Saban has really, you know, educated me personally, educated much of the, you know, low-carb metabolic health and keto communities on. Um, and it's really a condition that, you know, turns out to be fairly common but uh, incredibly under-recognized, incredibly under-diagnosed. And, you know, I can tell you that most physicians are not aware of this condition. Uh, and Siobhan has really been, you know, bringing it to the forefront. Uh, so uh, let's, let's transition into that uh, yeah. because it's another amazing part of her 
urinate. Yeah, so in terms of physical effects, just a brief overview, uh, no longer obese. So I'm about 80 pounds down at this point. And that was mostly over the first two years or so. And then the rest was just sustaining it. Um, and uh, I used to have um, stage one hypertension. No longer have that. Blood pressure is normal. Uh, used to have metabolic syndrome. No longer have that. Everything looks good. Uh, let's see what else. Eczema. No longer have that. Uh, used to have chronic acne. No longer have that. Uh, my hair used to be very poor quality, super frizzy. Now it's like glossy. It's funny because I would watch like these shampoo commercials and be like, God, I wish my hair could look like that. Like so glossy and smooth. And now like, it doesn't look like a commercial, but it looks a lot healthier. And it's something that my sister commented on very early in, like, have you changed your hair? It's like, no, (laughs) but it started getting less frizzy, which is very interesting. Um, uh, unfortunately, I can't give you a little <laughs> too late for that. Uh, but yeah, so hair health, skin health, just internal health, like all of this stuff. I used to have chronic joint pain also. Um, and that has gone away for the most part. If I have certain trigger foods, um, honey is a pretty bad one. It'll trigger the joint pain again. So I don't eat that. <laughs> I went to a restaurant once and they gave me honey butter instead of regular butter and then didn't tell me until after I had eaten a ton of it. And I was up all that night with horrible pain and I had never eaten at that restaurant again. Um, I used to also have a really difficult time sleeping. Um, There were some periods where I would be staying up for 48 hours because I couldn't sleep. That sucks. I also don't recommend that. Um, I also had a really difficult time just keeping a schedule, like a sleep schedule. I would flip around all the time, um, which was also not fun when I was working (laughs) because I would just go to work at some points and I had not slept yet. And I would sleep in on the weekends to catch up on what I hadn't been able to get through the week. Um, So all of that stuff is now done, taken care of, don't have to worry about it. Um, I go into my doctor, he gives me the thumbs up and we talk for like an hour and then I leave. Um, but the one thing that I didn't realize at the time, and I didn't realize until uh, probably around two years ago, because uh, it took a while to get a diagnosis, is I had done a fasting experiment. Um, I had done a bunch of fasting over my journey. I was involved in a bunch of people who did extended fasts. And so I would participate in some. I had done like a million different 24-hour fasts, three-day fasts. Um, at one point I did a seven day fast and a lot of them were when I was heavier. And so it was really easy. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to eat for like a week, whatever. (laughs) It's boring, but it's not particularly difficult. Um, and so this time I was like, I'm still heavy, like looking at me, I look larger. I clearly have a lot of fat on me. So I'm going to do a two week fast. It should be super easy, safe. Like if I'm carrying all this extra weight, I should be able to access it during the fast. No problem. But Over the course of the fast, I found towards the tail end that I was getting really, really tired. I had to sleep all the way through the night and then a nap as well. Um, I also was just kind of foggy headed and I don't know, lethargic is probably a good way to put it, getting kind of cold. Um, And I was like, but this doesn't make any sense (laughs) because... I have fat, (laughs) like this should be fine. I'm not like a super lean athletic person. 
Um, and I was talking to someone who was familiar with fasting and was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of weird. Um, and eventually I broke the fast and I had taken measurements before and after, and I had lost, um, inches at the waist and an inch from the thigh, but my arms, my upper arm measurement had not changed over two weeks of not eating. And my arms are not small. (laughs) Um, and I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. And I had posted. (laughs) I love that response. (laughs) Well, I mean, when you get an unexpected <laughs> results, <laughs> like that's interesting. I wonder why that is. Um, but I had posted a before and after for the fast on Twitter. And I had also posted on Facebook and three separate people messaged me in private and said, I saw your before and after picture from the fasting experiment. Have you considered that you might have lipedema? Because it looks like you might, <laughs> especially from what you're describing. I was like, I don't know what that is. So no, I haven't considered it. (laughs) I'll look into it. Um, So I ended up digging through a bunch of stuff and talking to other people with lipedema. um, And it seems possible. But at the same time, it's like me. I don't know. That sounds like the other person problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I talked to my doctor about it and he was like, well, I could refer you to a specialist in California and you can go see them. And maybe I don't know how much you can do about it. Basically it's like, well, I at least want to know like in 2017, when I developed an egg allergy, my doctor, previous doctor also said like, well, you could just not eat eggs. (laughs) It's like, yeah, but I want the diagnosis so that if I fix it, then I have it on paper. (laughs) So same concept here. Like I want it on the record. I want to know absolutely what I'm dealing with. And so then I can learn more about it and see what I can do about it. And so I did go see that specialist and she was pretty much like, yep, absolutely diagnosed me with lipedema, told me a whole bunch of stuff I wasn't aware of. Um, Like she asked if I got heat induced edema. So basically, do I swell when I get hot? And I said, well, I don't know, because I try not to get overly hot because when I do, it feels like I'm choking. And she's like, okay, so yes, <laughs> you get used to Dima. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's good to know. I don't need to laugh, but. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, uh, yeah, that's not normal. But the thing about it is, like, you only live in one body. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the things you experience, like with the depression, it's like, well, everybody must experience this. And I just, right. you know, they don't talk about it because everybody knows it happens. Um, and so let me explain what lipedema is, because yes. a lot of people are <laughs> not aware. Um, so lipedema is a fat and lymphatic disorder. So it involves a what? Uh, it's a fat and lymphatic disorder. Fat so, and lymphatic. Yeah. Okay. So it's a disorder that affects both the fat tissue and the lymphatic vessels, and the lymphatic system helps remove fluid from the tissues, basically. Um, so it affects both of those, and it results in this disproportionate accumulation of fat, uh, typically in the lower body. So I have it hip to ankle, and then it can also happen in the arms. So I have it shoulder to wrist as well. And in my lower abdomen, so it's all over the place. And the other thing that happens along with the fat gain is that the fat can then scar. And so when you try to lose weight, like when you're not eating for two weeks, that fat is potentially inaccessible and you can't access it. Because of the scarring. Because of the scarring. Um, So there are pictures um, from surgeries for lipedema surgery and stuff like that. And in the standard of care paper as well, um, where they've 
removed these scar like balls of scarred fat basically so you can see them they're definitely there um and some people was just completely riddled throughout the tissue in affected areas um and you can also feel them through the tissue um i think phil (laughs) has felt mine because i go up to people and be like do you want to know what it feels like um but you can palpate the fat basically and you can feel the bumpiness and lumpiness underneath and that is Bill's, scar Bill's feeling his, his abdomen right now i can see it <laughs> um so yeah and <laughs> the other aspect is that it almost exclusively affects women so it's like bill is there something you haven't told us <laughs> um i think a sort of similar thing can happen um leslin keith who is a lymphatic therapist has commented like a sort of similar thing can happen in dependent areas if someone has been obese and i think that can be in the abdomen so that might be what that is um i've run into some former obese who have commented oh yeah i feel like a little bit of a weird texture or it could be other things there's a ton of weird things that can (laughs) happen with fat um so you have that aspect the other aspect though is the fat is painful which also sucks. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there would be um, before keto, like my boyfriend would grab my arm to get my attention, like not rough. He's just putting his hand on my arm and I'd snatch my arm away and be like, that hurts. He's like, whoa. And sometimes other people would do that and I would react that way and they'd be like, oh, stop overreacting. That doesn't actually hurt that bad. It's like, no, I'm not overreacting. That wow. hurts. Um, and so some women with lipedema may not even realize But like when a pet sits on your lap and is putting pressure on your legs or blood pressure cuffs on the arms and that hurts, a lot of people don't realize that's not normal. (laughs) And I didn't realize either. It wasn't until I talked to the specialist who diagnosed me that I was like, oh, that's what that is. And um, the other way you can do is you can palpate the fat again, um, apply pressure to it. And there can be a lingering soreness. And for me, is not really there anymore. Um, but that's the other trick aspect <laughs> is when I was looking into it before I had been diagnosed, because I wanted to go in kind of having an idea of what I was dealing with um, and be able to ask questions. Uh, there was a paper <laughs> called, um, I don't remember the exact title, but it's by uh, Catherine Sayo and Leslie Keith. And it's talking about a ketogenic diet as a potential therapy option for lipedema. And one of the things they commented on was that uh, ketogenic diets can help with lipedema related pain. It's like, oh, so that's why that got better. And I didn't really notice (laughs) until I was thinking about the two separate time periods before it was extremely tender, um, all of that. And now it's like, it doesn't matter. You can be as rough (laughs) with my arms as you want. And I don't care. Um, So those aspects. And then the other part of lipedema as well is that you can get swelling in the legs. Um, so that could be orthostatic. So as you're standing throughout the day, the swelling could get worse, or it could be heat induced edema as well. Or sometimes from what I've noticed and what other women with lipedema have commented on certain trigger foods, <laughs> um, can trigger swelling. And that's another reason why I have to be careful about what I eat because it can trigger swelling. And then with the swelling, the pain comes back. Um, So there can be an aching pain or the fat can become more tender, painful again, which sucks. And then the other part is easy bruising, um, particularly in areas that are affected. So I would get random bruises on my thighs and legs and be like, huh, I wonder where that came from. 
and then brushed it off because like I must have hit whatever and didn't realize it. But it was unusually frequent. And um, since I've gone high fat carnivore, actually, um, that easy bruising has not happened in over a month now, I think. So there are different things that can impact it, which is good. So um, ketogenic diets are one aspect of that. It can help with the pain, with the swelling. It can help women with lipedema lose the remaining healthy fat that they have to a healthy extent. Um, And often there's fatigue that comes with it as well, which also seems to come with the swelling. So reducing the swelling also helps reduce the fatigue. Um, And then uh, ketogenic diets, for some at least, can help slow progression or stop progression. So over the past six years, the only times where I've seen progression um, was the high carb experiment (laughs) that I did uh, in, when was that? 2019, I think. 2018 or 2019. Stupid idea. But at the time, (laughs) I did not know that I had lipedema and I had also formulated the experiment to be with like whole foods. So I was like, this is going to be fine. Like the bad carbs are like the bread or whatever. It was black beans and chicken breast and a little bit of spices. And eventually I added in honey and bananas (sighs) every single day. (laughs) I'm like, why? Why? Um, So one of the fallouts from that was I gained 17 pounds over the course of the experiment. And then in the aftermath, I kept gaining. Um, And the experiment length was eight days for the intervention. And it was hypercaloric for the last part. So it was like 3000 calories a day of, I don't know, I think it was like 400 carbs or something like that. It was bad. Um, And so I gained 17 pounds. And then since that point, I have not been able to lose 10 of those pounds. And I got a DEXA scan to compare to one I had before that experiment. And the places where I had gained fat was in all the places where I have lipedema. So it's like I gained the fat and then it probably scarred over (laughs) and now it's there. Like, boy, if I could go back in time, but also I kind of appreciate that I did the experiment because now I can warn other people. Like if you have lipedema, you do need to be careful. Um, Especially like, so how do, uh, how do people, how, how, what are, what are some of the, the, the signs that people should look for? that maybe what's going on is lipedema. Yeah. So the typical signs, the typical signs are the disproportionate fat gain, as I mentioned. So in the lower body, and then typically when women try to lose weight, it will, they'll lose it from the torso and the face and the waist, um, but not in the lower body. So they'll have disproportionate weight loss as well. Um, And it could even be to the point, especially if um, they develop an eating disorder, for an example, which has been known to happen, um, they can become emaciated in the upper body, but they're still, they still look obese on the lower body. Um, And I think there's a picture of that in one of Gary Taub's books, maybe good calories, bad calories. Um, But it's very, (laughs) like, once you see it, it's like, whoa. Um, And so there's the disproportionate uh, gain and loss. And then also the pain is very distinctive. Um, So you could put pressure on the legs or palpate the fat, like I mentioned, and it could ache. It could, um, some describe it as like a burning or stabbing pain. Um, Some people have it so bad that it is excruciating pain. 
Um, and then the other aspect is the nodules. So you can feel the fat um, and the graininess and bumpiness is also very distinctive. And that would be in those same areas. So the arms and some people and then the lower body as well. And, and this, this is because the lymphatic system is does an insufficient job of flushing the fat tissues. Is that, is that right? So it's interesting because there are new papers from just this year, actually, that are looking closer at the lymphatic system because there's been this big debate. Is there actually edema and lipedema? So they're trying to investigate it, but get better quality imaging, stuff like that. And they found that in the very, very early stages of lipedema, so you can go from stage one to stage four, where stage four is very severe and stage one is kind of the beginnings of it. Um, in the early stage, the lymphatics appear to be working overtime. Um, so they're pumping faster than normal to try and get excess fluid out. And um, there's other papers that talk about the capillaries, the blood vessels in lipidemic areas are leaky and dilated and releasing more fluid into the tissue. So it could be that what is happening is the capillaries are releasing this fluid and then the lymphatics are trying to take it up. And then over the course of a long, long time period, years and decades, the lymphatic system eventually cannot keep up and starts to become damaged and fail. And at the end of that, with stage four, you can develop lymphedema, which the lymphatic system has now become damaged and dysfunctional. And now you get excess swelling and even more complications, skin infections, stuff like that. Um, so in the beginning stages, we don't know if there are other irregularities with the lymphatic system or anything like that. Um, this, like, lipedema was only named in the 1940s. So it's pretty young in terms of research, especially when looking at, like, heart disease or diabetes, which we can see all the way back to, like, ancient Egypt. Um, so we're still learning. And over the past few years, especially, there's been a ton of papers published. Um, but there's a lot we don't know. Um, we know the lymphatic system is involved. And as a comorbidity, it can, can become damaged. Um, but we don't know why. <laughs> um, is there a so, model for why, why it primarily affects women? So it seems like there might be a hormonal component because the other aspect well, that was my of it first is, thought. Yeah. Um, the other aspect is that um, I've seen like two different surveys on it, basically. And around half of women said that the onset was around puberty, pregnancy, and menopause. So for me, it would have been around puberty, um, where everything else started going <laughs> bad. Um, In other words, three significant hormonal transition periods. Yeah. Um, and is, it, is it the presence of female hormones or the absence of male hormones, or do we even know enough? I don't think we know enough. Um, there are some case reports of men who developed lipedema and in every single case that I know of, of those reports, they had um, hormonal, not defects exactly, but they had conditions that resulted in low testosterone and high estrogen. Um, so it seems like there's a hormonal case to be made, but I don't think we know the specifics. Um, so I've given a couple presentations because obviously, as I'm learning about this for myself, I'm also trying to figure out what the heck is happening because I get like bugs in my brain. It's like, but why, but why? <laughs> um, 
And with lipedema, there's multiple different things that show there are potential connective tissue abnormalities. Um, so there's uh, hypermobility that is common around like 58% of women they looked at with lipedema were hypermobile, which is more uh, than means, the general population. That that means that joints, joints are overly flexible. than they're supposed yeah. to. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the interesting thing with that is when they looked at it per stage, the rate of hypermobility went up and up and up for each stage. So the more severe the lipedema was, the higher the rates of hypermobility. And in stage four, it was something like 80% had hypermobility. So something funky going on there. Wow. And then, um, there's also some like aortic stiffening that is more common in women with lipedema, at least from initial reports. And that's also seen in a genetic condition called Williams syndrome, which affects basically a whole range of different things throughout the body. Um, but there are part of the genes that are affected in Williams syndrome are connective tissue related, and they also have the aortic stiffening. And they think what it is, is the connective tissue in the aorta is not formed properly or maintained properly or something is going on there. And so it stiffens as a result because it's hyperflexible. Um, and so there's that aspect. And then there are also changes in the blood vessels um, that indicate there's potential connective tissue changes there as well that's affecting them, maybe impacting why they're leaky or dilated, all that type of stuff. Um, and a couple other things too, but basically there's a common thread. <laughs> Something is weird there, even if we don't know precisely what. Um, wow. So my kind of latest thinking is maybe the issue is a connective tissue problem. And like, let's say you have someone who's wonderfully healthy and all that, and they also have this, maybe this pathological symptoms, the kind of harmful symptoms of the swelling and the pain and all that type of stuff won't occur if that's the only issue they're dealing with. And they can kind of mitigate those issues. The immune system is not overtaxed by metabolic syndrome, all this type of stuff. Um, they can repair and remake the connective tissue. Like the person's eating a healthy diet. They have all the stuff they need to make stuff. Um, but if you have someone who is going through periods of stress that may affect that aspect, um, then you may start seeing issues. And Leslie Keith was actually the one who pointed out to me that Puberty, pregnancy, and menopause are not only times of hormonal flux, they're also times where we can become naturally ins insulin resistant um, because they're stress periods. <laughs> like it's a lot of stress to grow as a human being during puberty, and you're also adding in the hormones during that point. Pregnancy, you'll also become insulin resistant to gain weight, and it's also a stress period. And then um, menopause is not quite the same hormonal area, but it can be a time period where women start more rapidly developing metabolic issues, diabetes, heart disease, which indicates they're more susceptible to health problems in general, which may mean they're more susceptible to problems from lipedema. Um, so that's kind of my current thinking. And there's a ton more to go into that um, in terms of the specifics and what exactly may be happening. But the very, very short overview is potentially what's happening with the scar tissue is that, you know, normally fluid comes into the tissue and the elastic tissue will kind of act like a rubber band and push back against that and then push the fluid back out. Um, and with Williams syndrome, what seems to happen is the fluid comes in 
and the elastic tissue is more lax. So kind of like a taffy. So it stretches. Um, and the interesting thing with Williams syndrome is around 30% of them or so uh, develop a lipedema profile, like a phenotype. So they have the disproportionate fat. Um, it looks like someone has lipedema, but they're missing some of the aspects. So they don't have the easy bruising. Uh, they don't have pain. So it's like, okay, there's something a little bit different. Um, and so I'm wondering if maybe what's happening with lipedema is the fluid's coming in and because of a potential underlying connective tissue disorder, maybe instead of stretching normally like a rubber band or being lax, like the taffy example, it's breaking. Um, and so if it's a weak connective tissue, then, um, that would explain the easy bruising because the connective tissue helps support the blood vessels. So if that's weak, you could have easier bruising from that. Um, if you're also <laughs> breaking connective tissue in the fat, like that supportive network is extremely important for fat health. So if you're disconnecting chunks of fat, maybe they're becoming damaged and injured and scarring over after that continues for a longer period. Um, so, but I don't know if it's true. <laughs> it's well, just what I think about. Well, it begs the question, um, does, is the way that you care for yourself in terms of your diet, is that making a positive impact on your experience of lipedema? I would say yes. Um, so like I mentioned, the bruising is almost gone with the way that I currently eat. I haven't had any random bruising in over a month now. Um, and if we if we believe um, that the bruising and the connective tissue faults are connected and they're reflecting each other, if one is causing the other one, then the decreased bruising might suggest that my connective tissue health is better um, eating the way that I do. And the other sign of that actually is I do have hypermobility, like I was <laughs> demonstrating yeah. before. Um, and if I'm not eating as well or other things, like um, if I don't sleep enough, my arm can start subluxing. So the joint will try to move out of the socket, which is, uh, it feels as gross as it sounds and sometimes it's painful. Um, but with the way I eat now, that almost never happens. Um, it feels pretty solidly in the socket, luckily. <laughs> um, like I'm still hypermobile, but it's not to right. as severe an extent where like if it were worse at the far extreme, you could accidentally dislocate from doing normal activities. Thankfully, I've never experienced that. Sounds horrible. <laughs> um, so that has also improved, which is another sign that it, maybe it, connective tissue health has improved. Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, connective tissue disorders, uh, specifically, there's one uh, called uh, Ehlers-Danlos, where mm -hmm. they have that hypermobility and they dislocate joints easily. And uh, that is another condition that I, I know of people uh, have improved it with you know, carnivore ketogenic, uh, you know, diet. So, um, it's just interesting to see how this all starts to come together. And, yeah. you know, you basically, uh, you know, you started on a dietary therapy, uh, to address a problem. Um, and then you unmasked essentially another problem, uh, which has also improved, you know, with that same, uh, dietary therapy. And, you know, that just has to lead you down the, uh, thought pathway that these are somehow related. Um, you know, there's a, uh, 
uh, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, sort of principle uh, in medicine that, you know, if you have two, if a patient has two diseases, you know, it's more likely that they have a common root than that they're two, you know, truly distinct uh, disease processes. Yeah, for sure. And it's fascinating. Like, I've definitely heard um, just anecdotes, of course, but people with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and Marfan's as well, who said that their symptoms improved with the ketogenic or sometimes particularly a carnivorous diet. Like, ooh, that's interesting. Um, And then in terms of like other symptom improvement real quick, um, the pain, like I said, is pretty much gone. Like I'll sometimes get aches, but it's usually um, along with swelling and I can do things about that. Um, Like I have compression gear and next week I actually have an uh, appointment for manual lymph drainage, which is also supposed to help uh, reduce the swelling and then help the lymphatic system out a little bit (laughs) because it struggles. Um, And so the thing with lipedema is like, it's not only a ketogenic diet, but it seems like a ketogenic diet is this important keystone that makes every other aspect of management way easier especially because women with lipedema can have depression and anxiety and body image issues. And just like I've experienced, the mental health benefit helps a lot too when you're dealing with a really honestly sucky (laughs) chronic condition, like having the mental stability and just like groundwork for that to deal with like, okay, I can handle this. Like I cannot even imagine if I had been diagnosed before finding keto, the devastating impact of that because I was already dealing with so many other things. And then adding that on top is really difficult. And I've heard from women who are often in that position with lipedema where it's just a nightmare. (laughs) Um, But there are also many of those same women um, try ketogenic diets and a more holistic approach to dealing with it. And it's life-changing, like quality of life improves, depression symptoms can lessen. It gets easier to deal with. You have the sense of community as well, because a lot of other people are doing this. Um, and it feels like you have tools to address issues that you were having, even if you didn't realize you were having them. Um, so all of that is good. And the other aspect again is like I said, except for the high carb experiment, (laughs) um, I haven't had any progression in six years, which is pretty cool. Um, and the interesting thing in my case is, I like if I hadn't gone on a ketogenic diet, I might not have been diagnosed so early. I probably wouldn't have been because I not only had lipedema, which was on the lower body and the arms, but I also had central adiposity. So I had stomach fat. I had uh, (laughs) central adiposity, um, stomach fat, like visceral fat. Um, I was obese all over and then lipedema underneath, (laughs) like hiding sneakily underneath. Um, So looking at me, you would have just been like, well, she's obese. Like, of course she's fatigued, of course, like whatever. Um, and, but then it was after the weight loss (laughs) that people were like, "Mm," because it came off disproportionately. Um, so it's very interesting. And I definitely did lose fat in lipidemic areas. Like I lost something like 10 inches off of my waist, I think almost exactly 10 inches but then also 10 inches off of my hips. Um, and I'm affected there with lipedema. My thighs have definitely gone down in size. So that's actually another bonus of ketogenic diets for lipedema that women sometimes comment on is that it makes it easier to lose in lipedemic areas, which is really, really important because if the lipedema gets severe enough, 
and enough fat accumulates, then you can start having issues with mobility just because of the physical obstacle around your limbs causing trouble with gait and just trouble with walking and the extra weight there and stuff like that. So getting some relief for that is like another (laughs) bonus, like add it to the list. So yeah, I would say things have improved (laughs) from a ketogenic diet. Wow. Um, I, I, I love the way your mind works. I want to ask you more and more questions and I'm also aware of the time. (laughs) Um, I think we at least just need to put a pin in it here. Um, Phil, it's getting to be time for us to start circling around with all the people that we've said we want to talk to you again. Um, Definitely. Um, so, Siobhan, uh, I guess the real quickly, uh, let our audience know what it is you do on a day-to-day basis right now that's helping our listeners, and then how do we get a hold of you? Yeah. So I won't go through the full list because (laughs) I work way too much. Um, But so the first thing actually is that I co-own a company um, called Own Your Labs, and that's with Dave Feldman, actually. Um, So we are a lab reseller, um, and that can help some people if they have issues getting access to that type of thing in the U.S. Um, But the other major things that I'm doing is I'm on the board of the Lipedema Project. Um, So that is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're focused on um, continuing research on lipedema and also advocacy, because one thing I didn't touch on is uh, the estimated rate for lipedema, at least in the U.S., is uh, 11% of women, which is one in nine. (laughs) So hideously underdiagnosed, and obviously it can have a big impact on quality of life. So we're very focused on increasing awareness, getting people to know what this is and what to do about it so that more people can be aware if it's something they're dealing with or someone they know, um, and then get them the help that they need to not have it be so overwhelming. Um, and then we're also doing a ton of different projects (laughs) that we don't have time to get into, but we're doing a lot of stuff. Um, and then I'm also at this point, I've (laughs) published one paper, uh, with Dave and then also Nick Norwitz. Um, and that was on the so-called cholesterol drop protocol or Feldman protocol. Um, so that was the case series that we published on. Um, and I'll probably be publishing more stuff (laughs) as we go on and I'm doing a ton of other stuff, but I can't talk about it yet. So lots of research, lots of learning, um, and lots of just advocacy and helping people try and understand um, just complex topics. I've done a lot of presentations on things like inflammation and insulin resistance and um, different biomarkers and lipedema and um, yeah, being a citizen scientist as well. So it's trying to connect with other people and like get them to understand why this stuff is important. And also that it's not impossible to <laughs> parse in, in a way that they can apply to their own lives. So what's the best way for people to interact with you? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. <laughs> um, so that is at Siobhan underscore Huggins. Please put it in the show notes so people don't have to try and spell it. Um, we will put it and, in the show notes. Yeah, you can just reach me there. You can also reach me at uh, Siobhan at thelipedemaproject.org. I may not have spelled that right, um, but we'll also put it in the show notes. Very good. Phil, you just keep blowing me away with the people you get to get that you bring me to get to sit and talk to and listen and learn i'm just 
I feel a little selfish sometimes because I'm having so much fun, but. Wow. Yeah. One of the best parts of, you know, this journey, certainly that I've been on personally and professionally is meeting um, all the other wonderful people who are on similar journeys. And, um, you know, I think uh, the common message, the common theme, you know, that uh, weaves through all of our stories is just, you know, there is hope and you can figure out, um, you know, what is wrong with your health and you can improve your health and just keep uh, just keep plugging away at it. Just keep asking questions and eventually you'll get to the right answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add on to that. Like if anyone is listening right now and any aspect of this conversation was, hey, that's me or, hey, I went through that or, hey, I'm going through that. You're not alone and we're here for you. So if you need any help, just reach out and we're here. That is just fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to have you back. I insist, Phil, please let's get her booked. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't come close to exhausting my questions. Um, Siobhan, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we will pro- post all of your contact information, people, the way people can get a hold of you, in the show notes. Uh, thanks for being with us. For Dr. Philip Ovedia, I am Jack Heald. Follow Dr. Ovedia on Twitter at iFixHearts. And uh, I would recommend, if you haven't done so yet, go to his website, ifixhearts.com, and take his metabolic health quiz. 88% of all Americans are metabolically unhealthy. A good way to find out uh, if you are one of the rare 12 out of 100 that aren't. I think and, we're up uh, to like 97% now, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me on. And <laughs> thanks for the great questions. All right. Well, until next time, we'll talk to you. Bye-bye. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.